Good morning, Christ Church. This is your pastor, and I'm coming to you from the church for our April 5th Sunday morning services, trying something a little bit different this week. We've had some difficulty with uh, connectivity and interference on our Facebook live feed, and so one of the things we decided to try was to do a pre-recorded message for this week's sermon and uh, if you're watching this then uh, you have access to our Facebook live post. Uh, we'll try to also have this up on our website so that <clears throat> we can uh, continue to provide online streaming and teaching for our church family as we are uh, in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis and uh, this looks like it will be uh, something that will continue at least through the month of April um, with President Trump and his task force announcing that they recommend the uh, social distancing um, through the end of April, then we as a church uh, will also um, honor and respect that as, as uh, difficult as it, it may be for us. Uh, we continue to just want to be good citizens and continue to um, help um, you know slow down this this virus and uh, so we're trying to do our part in that and, and I want to thank you for for tuning in and listening um, and watching from home and I pray that this message will be edifying to you so again we're trying something different and uh, it's a little bit uh, just honestly a little awkward for me but I don't think this is quite as awkward as preaching to an empty room and so uh, this will be a little bit more of a formal setting. And so uh, we're going to continue our study in uh, the book of Genesis as we've uh, really covered a lot of ground in the last couple of weeks. We've, we've looked at the seed war uh, from the Proto-Evangelium, which is from Genesis 3.15, about the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman and the, the perpetual enmity, the conflict, the war between godly offspring and uh, the offspring of Satan and, and how we, we saw that theme really run throughout the entire um, Bible and how relevant it really is. And, and then last week we, we looked at my brother's keeper and the tragedy between Cain and the murder of his younger brother Abel, how that was really one of the first decisive blows in the seed war as uh, Cain was used uh, uh, by the evil one. He was used of Satan uh, to shed the blood of his brother, uh, the righteous Abel, who was a man of faith. And uh, we talked a lot about that last week as well. And this week we're going to go ahead and, and jump into Genesis chapter 5. And this is a fascinating chapter of, uh, uh, in the scriptures. It's a fascinating passage of scripture. Uh, if you read Genesis chapter 5, you, you may think there's really nothing there. It's uh, basically... Uh, the genealogies of uh, from Adam to Noah, um, just a lot of names and some ages, and he begat he and and uh, and all the begets and begats that we oftentimes overlook and and really skip out on in the scripture. And I think you'll be really interested and really surprised to see that God has really provided a fascinating message really a redemptive message, a gospel message right here in the midst of Genesis chapter 5 that 
many people otherwise um, will probably skip over and, and not pay very much attention to. So as you'll see here in a few minutes, we have some really good things to share from Genesis chapter 5. And so I want to begin just by opening this session with the word of prayer, and we will jump right in. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge your presence, your spirit, who is our teacher, our helper, our comforter. And I acknowledge today, Lord, that without you, it is a vain and fruitless work for me to stand up and try to teach your word. Uh, but with you, in your presence, with your help and, and the guidance of your Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that this message would be encouraging and edifying to your people and that we would continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ as we study this wonderful book of Genesis together. And I do continue to pray for our nation, for our leaders, for our churches, for, for um, those who are being affected by this, this terrible um, disease, Lord, the people who are suffering, who are sick, those who have died from this. Uh, we acknowledge, Lord, that this is, um, this is a very, very hard and a very difficult time for so many. And so, Lord, we turn to you and look to you to be our provider, our protector, uh, the, the Prince of Peace, and uh, really to just be so aware of your presence in our lives right now, Lord, that you would continue to speak to us and lead us as individuals and as your church, as your bride, through these difficult days. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, so we're continuing our study in the book of Genesis in the beginning. And today I want to talk to you about Methuselah. Uh, the title of this message is Old as Methuselah. You've probably heard that idiom over the years and you wonder where does this come from? Well, it comes from a man in the Bible and he's referenced here in Genesis chapter 5. And his name is Methuselah. And we'll see, uh, we'll learn a lot more about Methuselah here in just a moment. But Methuselah is the oldest recorded person in human history as far as we know, especially in the scriptures, and you'll see here in a moment that Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. Now, even Adam, uh, who was uh, the great, great, I think great, great grandfather of Methuselah, he, um, Adam only lived to be 930 years old, and so as, I, as I've said before, Methuselah takes the cake when it comes to the oldest living man, and uh, we, we're going to be challenged a little bit this morning to really ask ourselves the, the question that I think is on a lot of people's hearts. Did men really live to be as old as Methuselah, as the scriptures say, especially here in Genesis chapter 5? So I just want to begin by reading Genesis chapter 5, and we're, we'll break it down the best that we know how. And uh, so I'm going to begin in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 5. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. 
When Seth had lived 105 years, he, followed, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. So when Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. And Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahaliel. And Kenan lived after he fathered Mahaliel 840 years and had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Mahaliel had lived 65 years when he fathered Jared. Mahaliel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahaliel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. And thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Here's our man Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, when Methuselah had lived 178, excuse me, 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And when Lamech lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so there in Genesis 5, we have this genealogy. And so the first question uh, that I want to ask you, here's a, here's a beautiful picture of this tree. This tree is named Methuselah, by the way, and many believe this may be the oldest tree in the world. Some believe that this tree is as old as 4,000 years old. Uh, very interesting, but I uh, thought it's, it's kind of neat how they named this tree Methuselah. So we're going to see here, did men really live to be eight, 900 years old as what we've just read in Genesis five? Did they really live that long before the flood? And the simple and short and, and really the, um, the very emphatic answer is yes, we do take these ages to be historical and literal ages. Now, before we look at what the Bible has to say, I do think it's interesting that when you look a lot at a lot of the uh, pagan myths of the world, like Greek mythology, for example, the, the, uh, the Greek historian Hesiod, he, he writes about the different ages of man and again, this is mythology, so this is a, a perversion of the truth. However, many of the Greek myths and they, uh, many of the other pagan myths, uh, they have you know, kernels of truth within them. They, they try to tell some of the basic stories of history, and yet they've, they've been perverted and corrupted in their own way. But it's interesting that Hesiod, who was a Greek historian, 
he writes about the five different ages of man, and, and one of the ages of man, really the first age of man, he calls the golden age of man. And just listen to how Hesiod describes the golden age of man. It says, this was the time when the, when the gods and men lived together. And so the titans were on the earth in those days, and, and from Greek mythology, titans were giants. Um, which is interesting because we're going to talk a little bit more about giants here in, in, uh, in a week or two. And it says that mankind lived harmoniously among the gods and interacted with them in this golden age. Again, this is just Greek mythology. It says there was abundance of food and nature provided everything that man needed. Humans did not need to work, and so they were able to live to be a very old age. It says that this was the era when men lived to be a thousand years old, and even when they died, it happened peacefully. It was a time of happiness and a time of peace. And so we see that even from Greek myths and things like that, there, there seems to have been some understanding of a time when humans were able to live very, very long lives. But what we have to understand is that Greek mythology, again, has been perverted and has been corrupted and however, we have from the biblical record and the biblical account, we have the true history of mankind. And when we look at these um, ages in Genesis 5, and we think about Adam living to be 930 years old, Jared lived to be 962, Methuselah lived to be 969 years old, we have to understand that we have the truth of history provided and preserved for us right here in God's Word. So let me tell you three simple reasons why I believe we are to take these ages as literal ages, historical ages that can be trusted and that they can be taken into account as accurate ages of these forefathers um, that are recorded here in Genesis chapter 5. Reason number one, genealogies and ages are presented literally and historically in the Scriptures. And so, for instance, when Abraham, when it says that Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born, then we should take that to be literal. There's no reason for us to take that age symbolically. When Jesus, it says Jesus was 12 years old when he got separated from his parents uh, during the Feast of Passover. And you know the story is, is as uh, Joseph and Mary uh, leave Jerusalem, they, they realize Jesus is missing. They go back to find him, and of course he's there in the temple courts asking questions and, and talking to the scribes and, and uh, the religious leaders of his day. But it says Jesus was 12 years old when, when that happened. Are we to think that this is a symbolic number or is this a literal number? And of course, these, these ages in Scripture are to be taken literally. And there's nothing in Genesis chapter 5 that, uh, from an interpretive perspective, that should cause us to take these ages and these numbers to be symbolic in any way. Uh, so I just have a plain interpretive method to read the text in a straightforward way. And when I read these, uh, when I read these vast and, and unusual ages, I take them as, as literal. And I, and I think that you should too. And I think there's very good reasons for doing that. Now, there are other people that have a, a lot of other different theories about the similarities between the genealogy in Genesis 5 and, and for instance, the, the Sumerian kings list and how there, there may be some symbolic... Um, and allegorical uh, interpretations when you look at these ages. And, and some people, you know, take, take a deep dive into trying to really decipher, do these numbers mean something and, and that kind of stuff. And, and I'm, I'm open to, to looking into some of that. There, there may be some type of uh, symbolic interpretation that you can take 
in addition to the fact that these were real men who lived a very long time and were to take those ages to be what the scriptures say they are, the very literal ages. Now, that's the first reason. Number two, the second reason is that you have to consider that the original creation that God made was perfect. It was, it was without flaw. It was very good, as, as what the Lord said in Genesis 1.31. Uh, there was no sin in the original creation initially. And think about this. Man was initially, originally created to live forever. And so now we have to really begin to understand that it was only after the fall, only after sin entered the world, only after death entered into the world, only after the curse of creation was uh, mankind uh, even having to uh, understand life had an end. Because up until that point, Adam and Eve obviously were created to live forever and they were placed in a perfect, beautiful paradise of creation without any flaw. And so therefore, they had a perfect environment. They were created to live forever. So when we, when we look at it from that perspective, it's really not that far-fetched to understand, well, well, they could have lived a very, very long time because they were that close to the original creation. And we'll talk more about that here in just a moment. And so we know that, that the bondage of the curse, that this corrupt uh, bondage to decay that the scriptures talk about, it adversely affected every aspect of creation. And so you kind of have the, the, the law of entropy taking place. And so things are now starting to break down, even though it may have been a very slow, gradual breakdown at the beginning. The law of entropy takes place. Things are wearing out. Things are starting to corrode and corrupt. And eventually human beings would die. Even Adam died. We see that every man in this genealogy eventually died, even though they lived to be very, very old. Let me give you a couple of reasons why a perfect environment maybe would have changed the ability or changed the, uh, uh, the environment to such an extent that mankind could have lived much older. There was perfect harmony at the beginning between man and nature. There was perfect weather at the beginning. Uh, there was a, a perfect ecosystem. The, the symbiosis in nature was at, a, at an optimal height and perfection. Uh, the human body was operating at optimal levels without any defects or flaws. So there was no wasted energy initially in the human um, you know, um, body or in, in, in the way that our, our cells function and how they operate. There was increased oxygen levels uh, in the atmosphere, and so oxygen saturation at the cellular level could have been at uh, just a, a tremendous increase of what we're seeing uh, in our world today. There was a pure environment, so all the air, the soil, the water, uh, free from all pollutants, free from all toxins and contaminants. And so just thinking about this pure environment from the very beginning, there was an abundant nutrient saturation in the soil and in plants and foods. And, and so you think about it, when you eat food now, we only get a, a minimal amount of the nutrients into our body that we need. And so at, at the very beginning of creation, they could have eaten this, this nutri nutrient-rich food that would have been completely absorbed by the body and utilized uh, at the cellular, cellular level. You also have the perfect genetic code in the replication process, and we're going to talk more about that here in just a minute. And then rapid healing capabilities and, and immune systems that would have been at, at the very maximum capacity. And then also little to harmful, excuse me, little to no harmful radiation coming from the sun, which is, we know that radiation breaks down our cells and can be harmful over 
uh, long periods of time. And so you, you can kind of imagine this, this, this utopia, this beautiful paradise. And even after the fall, uh, the, the original creation would have retained much of its uh, beauty and uh, purity. And therefore, mankind would have been living in this amazing world with, with very little contamination. And so you can see that just simply because of the perfect creation and couple that with the fact that man was initially created to live forever, that Adam and Eve were never truly intended to die to begin with, we can begin to see that the pre-flood world would have been vastly different than our world today. And so these factors alone would exp exponentially increase our lifespan. And so the old ages in the Bible are not a major problem when we consider the perfection of the original creation. And that kind of leads us to the, to the next thing I think is even a little more specific along those same lines is that there, there would have been genetic integrity in uh, the human genome uh, that would basically have, it would have slowed the aging process. And so, you know, I'm not going to get real technical with you here today, but um, we understand that, you know, today the oldest man that I think I, I saw in the news the other day, the oldest man in the world, he just recently passed away. Uh, he was 112 years old. You know, we, we live to be 80, 70, 80, 90 years old. And basically, you know, that, that's pretty much, we're limited out at those ages. You know, some may live past 100 but it's very, very rare. But here we have before the flood, people living seven, eight, nine hundred years old. What would have changed? And, and I think it has everything to do with genetic integrity. And so if you understand how our genes work, is that our genes, um, they, they, uh, they, they regenerate and they're able to replicate healthy cells. And so as you're young and you're growing and, and you know, you're getting to the optimal you know, prime of your life, our genes are operating at a, at a high level. They're, they're self-replicating. They're, they're reproducing healthy cells. They're regenerating. But at some point, somewhere around that 40-year-old mark or maybe even a little younger, our genetic integrity begins to, to gradually decline to where our, our cells no longer have the capacity to regenerate. And our cells no longer have the capacity to replicate healthy cells. In other words, that's why the aging process really takes place. So once we reach this certain age, our cells lose the capability to regenerate and we gradually wear out and we die. Now, let's look at a couple of verses of scripture that really speak to this. And of course, you see this picture here of, of, a, of a young hand and then as we get older, our hands begin to wrinkle and arthritis sets in and all the effects of aging sets in and eventually our bodies just wear out simply like a garment. And so I'm going to read a couple of passages of scripture here to, to kind of reiterate uh, that sentiment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, listen to what Paul says. Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, Yet inwardly, we are, we, we are being renewed day by day. So Paul is talking about the believer, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, listen, outwardly speaking, physically speaking, we're, our bodies are wasting away. This is so very true. We all are, have experienced this at some point in our life. But he said, inwardly, we're being renewed by the Holy Spirit day after day. Again, Romans 8 speaks very much into the, the corruption, the bondage to decay that, that the whole creation is under. 
Uh, I'll share a little bit. It says the, the, the creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption. This is Romans 8, 21. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And what's interesting about that is that Paul is, is, is making a very clear point here that our bodies are the last thing that will be redeemed. Uh, these bodies waste away, that we still are suffering and we will die in these physical bodies. And yet through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and on that day when he returns and we are resurrected, we're, we're going to be given new bodies, resurrected bodies. Our bodies will be redeemed never again to waste away. And that's what this next passage of scripture, for, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, really begins to talk about is because Paul makes a point here in 1 Corinthians 15, and this is very important. In verse 50, he says this, I tell you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Hmm. So Paul is now saying that we are not fit in these mortal bodies to inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if we are going to inherit the kingdom of God, which is what God has promised all of his children, then we must receive incorrupted, incorruptible bodies, immortal bodies, imperishable bodies. But we're living in perishable bodies. We're living in mortal bodies that, that waste away and decay. And so this is where Paul is, is speaking about the resurrection. And he's saying that we can't inherit the kingdom until we receive our resurrected bodies, our, our new glorified bodies. And that's where he says that when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And so Paul is using that as an illustration to speak to us about the resurrection from the dead, which Jesus is the first fruit. He's the deposit guaranteeing that we who believe in him will also be resurrected and receive our redeemed bodies just as he has received. And so again, did, did they live to be eight, 900 years old before the flood? Absolutely. There's reasons why they would have lived longer then than we live today. But thank God that they were initially created to live forever. And so when we think about it in that respect, it was really tragic that they only lived to be eight or 900 years old because they were supposed to live forever. And that's the gift that God has given you and me as his children. It's the gift of eternal life that we will live forever for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And so eight, 900 years, as the Bible says, will be like a day to us in the kingdom of God. And so we are created to live forever and Jesus has given us that ability. He's given us that privilege to be able to live forever. All right, so that's kind of where we, we, we start off and say, okay, these are literal ages. These are real people. These are historical figures. These are, uh, these are to be taken, uh, these ages, these vast ages are to be taken taken uh, literally, historically, and, and I wanted to make sure we emphasize that. But now I want to I focus in a little bit on one of the characters in the genealogy of Genesis 5, and that's Enoch. And the reason I'm going to give a little more special attention to Enoch is because the scripture gives a little bit more a special attention to Enoch. And if you notice here in Genesis 5, it says this. I'm going to turn back to Genesis. In Genesis 5, in verse 21, 
It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. So Methuselah, the oldest man that we know to ever have lived, uh, his father was Enoch. And this is what it says. It says that Enoch walked with God, or another translation says, Enoch pleased God. Okay, this is Genesis 5, verse 22. And after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, okay, so he walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And then verse 24 just gives us this, this mysterious passage. It says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, or he was no more. And it says, for God took him. Now, who was Enoch and what in the world happened here? And so, again, when, when, when the scriptures give special attention to something like this, we need to take into account, especially in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it covers such a vast amount of the early part of human history that every little detail matters. And so for some reason, God wanted us to pay special attention to this guy, Enoch. And so who was he? What happened to him? So we know Enoch, he was, he was the son of Jared. He was the father of Methuselah. And so that means he would have been the great-grandfather of Noah. So Enoch, father of Methuselah, great-grandfather of Noah. He is a very fascinating character in Scripture. He, he, does, he isn't found uh, that often throughout Scripture, but we know that he is one of only two men in Scripture that we know of that did not die a natural death. The other one being Elijah, the prophet Elijah, who was caught up into heaven and, and uh, on the, in the chariot of fire and, and taken away in a whirlwind. Elijah apparently did not die a natural death. And here Enoch, it says that he, was, he walked with God and then suddenly he, he was no more. He, he, he was not found because it says God took him. And so we see that Enoch also may be one of the uh, possible candidates that, that when you read Revelation chapter 11 and, and it speaks of the two witnesses in the, in the Great Tribulation, Enoch has been kind of one of the three possible candidates of, of the uh, witnesses there in Revelation chapter 11, the others being Elijah, and then Moses is a very good candidate as well. But he is a very interesting figure, and so let's find out a little bit more about Enoch. The first thing we know is that Enoch pleased God by his faith. And so in Genesis 5, where it says Enoch walked with God, it, one, one translation um, actually says Enoch pleased God. And in Hebrews chapter 11, which is the chapter of faith, we see that the author of Hebrews kind of elaborates a little bit more on this idea. In, in Hebrews 11, and I will read verse 5, it says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Okay, so he was, he was translated. He was taken away. He was, he was caught up. He was caught away by the Lord and so that he did not die a natural human death. So it says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And then verse 6, it says, and without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those 
who seek him. And so Enoch is the one, really, from that famous verse in Hebrews 11 about that is without faith it is impossible to please God. Enoch is used as the direct example of one who pleased God. So he had this very intimate relationship with the Lord. It says that he walked in personal relationship with God. And that's interesting because we know Adam and Eve walked with the Lord in the garden. We know, we'll see later, that Noah was a man who found favor in God's sight and he walked with God. And so this idea of walking with God, and we, we know even in Galatians 5, Paul plays on that entire uh, image of us walking in the Holy Spirit, walking with the Spirit of God. And so that when we walk with God, we're basically living in, in a very close, intimate relationship with the Lord. And so we know Enoch was unique in his generation in that he had a very personal relationship with God. He was a man of faith who pleased God because he had faith in the Lord. And then we see that he was taken by the Lord and translated into heaven. Okay, and so very interesting concept here. We, we know that uh, he, again, like Elijah, are the only two people that, that just seem to be taken into heaven without having died a natural human death. And so you can read up a lot more about that, and there's a lot of great you know, theories about you know, what that was all about. And, and uh, will we see Enoch again in, in the end times again? Those are all interesting. But I want to talk to you a little bit now about, about the book of Enoch. So Enoch was a prophet, and so uh, we know that Jude, we're going to see here in just a minute, he uh, quotes from the book of Enoch, uh, which is not in the scripture. And we're going to see that here in just a second. The book of Enoch itself is not included in the canon of scripture. But nonetheless, Enoch is called a prophet. He was a prophet in his day. And his name literally means teaching or one who comes to teach or teaching. And so we, we know that Enoch has some, had a, possibly had a prophetic gift. And so let's talk a little bit more about what this prophetic gift is. If we look at the book of Enoch, and I think it's interesting, we're going to go ahead and just kind of talk about this. This is a, a pseudo-apocryphal uh, uh, book, and it's called a, a pseudepigraphical book. Pseudepigraphical simply means uh, that it, it, it is attributed to the character Enoch, even though we don't really know who the author or authors may be. And so... Um, the book of Enoch, nonetheless, sometimes it's called the book of First Enoch. It was highly regarded in both the Jewish and Christian communities. Uh, it, it, again, it's not universally recognized as scripture, and uh, we can't really find a whole lot of evidence that it was universally recognized as scripture, not even in the Jewish community before Jesus and the New Testament church or after, even though many of the early church fathers did recognize this book as um, as scripture, and uh, I think the Ethiopian um, text of the Bible includes the book of Enoch as being one of the books of scripture. So there, there is a little bit of historical debate about should we think, should we consider this to be an authentic book of scripture, or is it just a very, uh, you know, good commentary or another good extra biblical resource, which is honestly where I, I fall more along the lines that, you know, the book of Enoch is is to be um, respected it is to be revered but I don't necessarily think we can go as far as saying it is inspired scripture now even though it's not inspired scripture uh, we understand that it was still highly regarded and it is a it is a historical religious book in the Judeo-Christian community that has substantial merit 
And, and what I mean by that is that the book of Enoch uh, was read and circulated and highly known by the Jews in, in what's called the Second Temple Period. That would have been around 515 BC all the way up to 70 AD. So about you know a five over 500 years of what's called the Second Temple Jewish Period. We know that the Book of Enoch, as affirmed as, as it was discovered, uh, fragments and other man, uh, ancient manuscripts of this book were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we know that it was very much being circulated in the Jewish community. Uh, at least up to two centuries before the birth of Jesus Christ and, and highly respected, highly regarded by the Jewish community. And like I said, many of the church fathers, Christian fathers, after uh, the New Testament church was born, they also highly regarded this book and, and they read it. And, and that's, that's one of the reasons why I think it's important that we're at least familiar with the book of Enoch. There's many different good English translations. You can go online and read those. Uh, you know, just look up Book of Enoch, English translation. I, I recommend that everybody take a little bit of time to familiarize yourself with it, to read it. It's a very interesting read. There's a lot of fascinating, um, you know, concepts in the Book of Enoch. It, it emphasizes the day of the Lord and the resurrection of the righteous. And uh, it, it gives context to the Book of Genesis, chapter 6, about the days of Noah and, and uh, the, the sons of God and, and uh, the giants being born. Uh, on the face of the earth at that time and really what that was all about. And, and again, this is just basically extra biblical commentary, but it was commentary that was very familiar in the days of Jesus and the apostles. As a matter of fact, we'll find that the New Testament authors make direct references to the book of Enoch and even quote it directly. And we're going to see that here in just a second. Second Peter chapter 2 uh, verses 4 through 10, that is, that is one of the references uh, Peter uh, gives reference to the book of Enoch in 2 Peter. Let's see if I can find my 2 Peter here. 2 Peter chapter 2, and now let me just share his portion that he gives us. This, this is a reference from the book of Enoch, and it says this, for, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus, into hell, which is the Greek word Tartarus, and he committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And so Peter, and again, he, he continues on through that passage, but he's making a reference, a direct reference to the book of Enoch, talking about the angels who sinned in the days of Noah and who were cast into chains of gloomy darkness. And then also, the book of Jude, as you see here, um, says this. And so Jude, the, the brother of the Lord Jesus, his... his uh, Jewish name would have been Judah. He quotes directly from this ancient book of Enoch. And he says this, he says, It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and we just read the genealogy, so he was the seventh from Adam. He prophesied, so he was a prophet. And he said this, and this is Jude quoting now from the book of Enoch, that we, we do have ancient manuscripts and ancient texts that, that affirm that this was at least attributed to Enoch, uh, well back at least 200 to 300 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. So, so it has some merit. It has, it has a little bit of uh, substance to it, even though we're not going to call it Scripture. But Jude and the apostles and even Jesus himself would have been very familiar with this book, and some of them may have regarded it as Scripture. So, so Jude is quoting now from the book of Enoch, and he says this, Behold, 
the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Notice he, he continues to reiterate this word ungodly and, and he's referring not just to what was happening in the days of Noah on the face of the earth before the flood as the ungodly perished in the flood, but now he's, he's casting it forward to the day of the Lord when the Lord Jesus returns with all of his holy ones, with his myriads of angels to judge the earth and to judge the ungodly. And so there you see Enoch is a very fascinating character. Uh, the book of Enoch is, is a very fascinating book. We'll make reference to it a little bit later uh, as we take this study in the book of Genesis a little bit further when we get into Genesis chapter 6. And But again, if you're not familiar with the book of Enoch, I, I say take a little bit of time, get online, you can read some good English translations there, and you'll find it very fascinating indeed. And, and so that's something that is very interesting. Now, I'm going to wrap this message up by sharing what I think is, is even... Uh, the, the most fascinating part of Genesis chapter 5. Now, this is not original with me. Uh, the first time I found out about this was with uh, the great and late Chuck Missler, who uh, he, he, was a, he's a Bible, he was a Bible scholar and teacher and preacher for I don't know how many, 30, 40 years, um, highly respected. And this is the first time that I heard this was from Chuck Missler, and I began to look into it, and it is just super fascinating. When we look at the genealogies, of Genesis chapter 5, we were going to see that God has placed the, a hidden message of the gospel that is revealed through the genealogies of Genesis chapter 5, specifically in the names of the individuals in Genesis chapter 5. And when you see this, you are just going to be amazed. Again, Hebrew names like Adam and Jared and Methuselah and Noah, you see, we, we, we transliterate those names into English because we really don't have that many Hebrew references to these personal names. But what we can do is take the Hebrew root of every name, and that Hebrew root word that makes up that name has a, has a Hebrew word associated with it, and it has a meaning associated to it. And so the, the people that have taken the time to do this work, they've taken the Hebrew root of each name in, gene, in the genealogy of Genesis 5, and they have shown how God has placed a hidden message of the gospel of Jesus Christ right here in the book of Genesis chapter 5. So let's take a look at it right here. You probably don't see this very well on the screen, but if you can, I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. So let's take every name of the, of the men that are listed in the genealogies of Genesis chapter 5 and, and just listen to what it says. So Adam means man, Seth appointed, Enosh means mortal, Kenan means sorrow. Mahaliel means the blessed God. Jared means shall come down. Enoch, as I said earlier, means teaching. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Interesting side note on Methuselah. When Methuselah died at 969 years, that was the beginning of the flood. And so he, his death shall bring the flood. It shall bring the judgment in the concept that when Methuselah died, um, Noah and his family entered into the ark, and God brought the flood on the earth. But anyway, it says, His death shall bring. That's what Methuselah means, the root word of Methuselah. Lamech means the despairing, and then Noah, his, his name means rest or comfort. So now, here's what I want to do. Think about all of those names 
their root words and meanings. Now let's put all of those names together in a comprehensive sentence, and this is what we get. Genesis 5, the genealogies and the names in Genesis 5 give us this message right here. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching his death shall bring the despairing rest. I want you to think about that for just a second. What are the chances that the meaning, the root meaning behind the names in Genesis chapter 5 would have come out in order, in sequential order, to give us this message unless God, the divine author of all of Scripture, was the one who put it there, who placed it there, so that we could see that he was already giving us a message of hope and redemption and salvation, even in the generations between Adam and Noah, when the world was so full of wickedness and violence, leading up to the greatest judgment the world had ever seen, which was the global flood. This is the God of the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel and how God is reminding us that even then, in the days of Methuselah, in the days of Noah, that God had a message of hope for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to this one more time. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching. We know Jesus' ministry was one of teaching and preaching and healing. And his death, whose death? The blessed God, his death, the death of Jesus, shall bring the despair and rest. As I leave you this morning, I just want to encourage you with one of my favorite verses from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says this. He says, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. The blessed God did come down and he came to save sinners. And I thank God that he saved a wretch like me and I hope and pray that you listening out there today knows with all of your heart that Jesus Christ came into this world. He came down and he died for you because of his great love for you and that God has been reminding us and he has been telling us this gospel message from beginning to end and the gospel remains true as true today as it did in the days of Noah 